Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about places that actually commemorate UFO encounters. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right, we have shout-outs going out to Lionel, Sandy, Paige, Couch, Sean, Deborah, Andrew, Tasha, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal, Animal, Alicia, Derek, Becca, Jen, Elizabeth, Wojtek, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Eric, Brandon, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Loki, Carrie, Ezra, Robin, Will, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Russell, Donald, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Sean, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scoston, Lindsay, Hawn, Megan, Aaron, Jeff, T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, Lauren, Strawn, hey, howdy, hi, Veronica, Autumn, J, Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Juliana, Dan, Laura Pitts, and GamerFan. With a very special shout out to Joe Teague and Stitch. Alrighty, let's head on over to Paranormal News. that one. All right, the first story in paranormal news, something's coming. Is America finally ready to take UFOs seriously? As you guys know, last year was a breakthrough time for UFOs, but 2022 could be even more profound as the clamor for UFO disclosure and discovery continues to grow, and as new scientific projects bring us closer to ever, ever to potentially discovering non-Earth life. Of course, we have the uh, government program, the one that hopefully will be forthright, which, come on, it's not going to happen, but, you know, we can hope that it'll be forthright and give us all the information. But I'm confident that 2022 is going to be a seismic year for UFOs, says Nick Pope, who spent the early 90s investigating UFOs for the British Ministry, Ministry of Defense. That's good. He says, I think we'll see congressional hearings on UFOs. I also think we'll see the release of more U.S. military photos and videos of UFOs and associated documents. Some of this may come via whistleblowers, but much of it may be released by the government itself, either proactively or in response to requests under the Freedom of Information Act. Finally, I think we'll see some high-caliber witnesses coming forward, including commercial airline pilots, military aircrew, radar operators, and intelligence officers with direct knowledge of this subject. Man, I hope so. I really do. I really hope so. Let's see... They said the encounters became commonplace. You know the encounters, the U.S. Navy ones that we all know about. 
And uh, Ryan Graves, retired Navy pilot, said, Every day, every day for at least a couple of years, those encounters happened. So where's that information? Yeah, exactly. Where is that information? Uh, it also talks about the uh, telescope that will use infrared cameras to take 24-7 video of the skies. It's equipped with a radio sensor and audio sensor and a magnometer. Sure, magna magna magnetometer. There you go. Oof. Magnetometer to detect non-visual objects. A computer will use artificial intelligence to analyze the data, ignoring objects like birds, drones, planes, and meteors, and paying extra attention to any objects, quote, that are not human-made. Love that. They say we're taking the road not taken, so there may be low-hanging fruit that nobody else is picking because they didn't know it. Yeah, I love it. I think it's cool. It keeps going on, talks about the web telescope, and uh, let's see. Other people say uh, Leonard David, author of Moonrush, A New Space Race, says that 2022 should be a banner year for UFOs. It's a great time to be alive. The bottom line is something's coming. You can't have that many people doing that much research and come up dry. At some point, we're going to have a confluence of scientific data that supports the likelihood that we're a pretty mundane place here on Earth and there are a lot of alien civilizations out there. We've got to start thinking we're not alone. It's how crowded is it up there? Yeah, I like that. I like that one a lot. All righty, up next in paranormal news, UFO expert Chris Mellon, based on what we know about UAPs, aliens are the best explanation. In case you don't know who he is, he's a UFO expert, and he makes the case for the alien hypothesis, which is the way to do I mean, it really is the way to do it. Scientifically speaking, you take a look at all of the data, you get rid of all the things it possibly could be, the best possible explanation is aliens. I thought that was a cool, short, short UFO story. Up next in paranormal news, Harvard astronomer says he's building device to capture high-resolution image of UFOs, but can he pull it off? Harvard astronomer, or Harvard professor, sorry, Avi Loeb, has been long outspoken about taking the search for extraterrestrial life more seriously. In an eyebrow-raising quest, he's often exhorted his colleagues to take UFO research also more seriously. Now he says he hopes to collect a high-resolution high-resolution image of a UFO within the next couple of years. I really want the next generation to be free to discuss it and for it to be car become part of the mainstream. i got to say that again because I just butchered that. I really want the next generation to be free to discuss it and for it to become part of the mainstream. My hope is that by getting a high-resolution image of something unusual or finding evidence for it, which is quite possible in the coming year or two, we will change it. The thing that we've been talking about for how long? Well, at least I have. Uh, but no, I know you guys have had it as well. I've seen it from all you guys as well. That the stigma of UFOs, it's going away. It really is going away. The scientific community is actually starting to take a look at UFOs and UAPs, as you well know. And the scientific community, as I always say, will prove the paranormal, and including, up to and including, UFOs. So the scientific community can address a topic even if other people address it in a way that's not scientific and doesn't make much sense. Yeah, there is no reason that they can't look at it a slightly different way, a more scientific approach to it, and see if they come up with viable data. Loeb says capturing, capturing strong UFO evidence, including the high-res image he hopes to snap in the next two years, will attract younger scientists scared away by the older, more cynical crowd. That sounds awesome to me. I love it. Get the young people in here. 
to save the Earth and to prove UFOs, please. Already up next in paranormal news. Was that a UFO flying over Hatteras Islands? Hatteras Island night owls reported a sighting of an unusual nighttime object that was seen flying over the island landscape on the night of January 30th, 2022. At around 11.30 p.m., an unexplained light was seen flickering over the Atlantic Ocean. The videos and pictures were captured in Frisco while looking between the constellations of Ursa Major and Virgo. Uh, let's see. Do they go on to say what it could be? I mean, I know what it can be. No, they, they, don't, they have... So far, there is no scientific explanation of what people saw. No astronomical explanation of what people saw either. They say that you can see the strange object change colors and directions multiple times as if it was dancing in the skies. The nighttime object was report, has been reportedly the nighttime object has reportedly not been spotted since its January 30th, 30th appearance, but islanders are advised to look up and see if it reappears. So there's something flying over the Hatteras Island and nobody can explain what it is. It's not swamp gas, it's not Saturn, it's not Venus. They don't know. Up next in paranormal news, I love these. I absolutely love these kinds of things and I know you guys do. These these kind of episodes I get some big hits from. So this one's in the paranormal news, but I would say you probably will be an episode coming up to deal with it as well. This fabulous modern four-bedroom family home close to Loch Ness includes extensive stabling and five acres of land. That's right. Another house. This one's not haunted, but another house has come up for sale right by Loch Ness. Right on Loch Ness. Kilmar Farm sits on the outskirts of Drum Nadrachet, the well-known highland village located on the western shore of the Loch Ness, just a few miles south of Inverness. These uh, rarely available lifestyle packages includes the house with more than 2,800 square feet. Uh, it's on two floors. It's got an outbuilding, around five acres of stock-fenced paddocks. It looks like it's right next to a cemetery, too, like a bitchin' old-ass cemetery. Uh... Externally, the property is accessed through a gated drive, parking for multiple vehicles, access to the garage, extensive detached outbuildings, yeah, yeah, and there's stables, there's barns, blah, blah, blah. There we go. It's on the market for 575,000 pounds. It's a cool-looking house, pretty house. Look, if I can see the lock from this house, not that I can afford it, but if I could afford it and I could see the lock from this house, I would love to have it. Being able to do a podcast from Loch Ness would be amazing. And keeping up with the houses, um, as I was saying earlier, expect an episode coming up for this kind of stuff, but this one, again, came up in Paranormal News. I had to talk about it. Florida's haunted My Girl House is back on the market for $500,000. A spooky old house featured in the 1991 film My Girl is once again back on the market. Located at 555 East Stanford Street in Barstow, Bartow, in Bartow, the 9500 9,500 square foot, I get what they're saying. Six-bedroom, eight-bathroom house was used as Harry Sultanfuss's funeral home, played by Dan Aykroyd, the man himself, Dan Aykroyd, and features a pool, massive wraparound porch, a gazebo, and seven fireplaces. This historic home was built in 1904. Besides being the place where Macaulay Culkin's character something happens to him, I don't want to spoil it, it's, also, it's also known as the Stanford Inn Bed and Breakfast, which has been a regular stop for ghost hunters looking to spot a former owner and ghost named Lee Merriweather. According to Haunted Places, doors allegedly open and close by themselves. Footsteps can be heard on the main staircase. That's right. 
a haunted house with connections to, you know, Hollywood as well, is currently up for $499,400. That's also a house that would be kind of cool just because of the haunted part and because, you know, Dan Aykroyd was part of it. But, um, yeah, I love, I love haunted places that are up for sale. In fact, let's keep on keeping on because guess what? Next up in paranormal news, you can buy this haunted house in Little Haiti for $3.5 million. So, all right, slightly more expensive. The historic Via Paula and its esteemed, esteemed original occupants have beguiled Miamians for generations. It could be said the one-story, 2,200-square-foot estate with its 18-foot ceilings and Cuban-inspired neoclassical stylings has it all. A rich backstory, a desirable location, and, as Miami Lores tells us, it also has a ghost. It can be yours for $3.5 million. No extra charge for the ghost. Property is located on North Miami Avenue between Northeast 58th and 59th Streets in Little Haiti. It's been on the market since November. And, uh, yeah, they say... It is definitely, it's designated as a historic site, but it is definitely haunted. So, yet another chance for you guys to buy a haunted house. Alrighty, what's up next in paranormal news? Shouldn't surprise you by this point. The ghost of Bloody Bruce haunts this Scottish castle that's for sale. It was a banner year for, or banner week for uh, haunted, uh, haunted houses up for sale. A castle in Scotland is said to be haunted by Sir Andrew, a.k.a. the, AKA the Baron of Earlshall. Earlshall? Earlshall? I don't know. Who lived in the home in the 17th century. It's up for sale with no particular asking price. Over the years, visitors of the castle have claimed to have heard the footsteps of Sir Andrew, who goes by the name Bloody Bruce. Sir Andrew lived in the home in the 17th century. Owners and visitors of the home say they hear footsteps of Bloody Bruce on the spiral staircase in particular. The Baron earned his nickname following the brutal victory at Battle of Killy Cranky in 1689 during the Scottish Uprising. Uh, what about, let's keep going on. He hacked off hands and heads. Uh, but, uh, but, um, after his direct mail line died out in 1708, the castles were bought and sold to different individuals. I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool. It's a gorgeous castle, cool-ass grounds. Oh, man, the, the, uh, the spiral staircase with, like, the tartan rug is just gorgeous. Um, I'll have to put this one up on the Facebook page because, you know, how often can you buy a haunted castle? The current owner purchased the estate in 2019. It was built in 1546 by Sir William Bruce. No relation. An engraved stone with the words, a nice wife and a back door often maketh a rich man poor. So weird. Uh, the castle has 10 bedrooms, 8 reception rooms, 2 dressing rooms, 6 bathrooms, 3 cottages across the ground, situated on 34 acres of land. That is cool. So yeah, yet another haunted place for you guys to buy. And finally, in paranormal news. I thought this was a pretty cool story. Inside creepy abandoned mansions haunted by grisly murders. The, it includes the Los Feliz Murder Mansion, which I thought just sold, but it says on this one that it didn't sell. If you don't know the, this one, uh, Dr. Harold Perlson was a, was a successful physician with a wife and three children when he moved into the Spanish-style home. On the night of December, 9th, 19, December 6th, 1959, at 4.30 a.m., he bludgeoned his sleeping wife to death with a hammer before attempting to murder his three kids. They said after killing Linda, he walked calmly into his 18-year-old daughter's room and attempted to smash her skull. 
but she screamed after the first blow loud enough to wake her younger brother and sister, Debbie and Joel. Um, it's, it's just a fucked up story. Anyhow, um, they say the house is back up for sale, but I didn't know that. I didn't, I thought it was sold already. Up next is Scotland's abandoned asylum called the Lennox Castle in Scotland. It was built in 1812. Uh, it was converted into asylum in the 1930s for the mentally ill. Obviously crazy haunted stuff because of that. Hospital was vacated in the 80s, officially closed in 2002. There are now plans to convert the building into flats. So if you want a nice apartment that used to be an insane asylum that's haunted as shit, there you go. Up next, we've got the Abercrombie Castle in New York State. When David Abercrombie, founder of Abercrombie & Fitch, built a castle in New York State, he and his wife Lucy named it Elda Castle. It's a... Sits on 49 acres of land, 25 rooms, service quarters, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's run down as shit, but it's beautiful. Um, After its completion in 1928, the couple's daughter Lucy died in a chemical explosion at her father's nearby factory. It eventually sold in 2019 for $4 million, but could be back up on the market, they say. What do you mean could be? Either it is or it isn't. And it just keeps going on. The list keeps going on and on. I'll post a, uh, I'll probably post this to the, the Facebook page as well so you guys can kind of look, scroll through and see a bunch of haunted stuff that's for sale that none of which I can afford, but I can talk about it. And that's what I just did. All righty, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back for more Paranormal Almanac. We are back. Before I get into this episode, head on over to patreon.com slash paranormal almanac for more ep- uh, like extra episodes and more stuff. You can head on over to storeenvy.com, search for paranormal almanac for all your paranormal almanac merch needs, including an upcoming 200th episode shirt, which I'm very excited about. A um, bunch of stuff out there. Check it out. You can go to etsy.com, search for 8-Bit Spock. She does the official Don't Shoot Bigfoot patch. For the, uh, for the podcast. I absolutely love it. Uh, you can go over to Facebook.com. There's the official Par- Paranormal Almanac page and the Paranormal Almanac page fan page. It's also official, but it's a fan page. A lot of cool people on there talking about a lot of cool stuff. And we also got Twitter. You can find me just about anywhere. But we are back. And on this edition, I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a look at places around the world that commemorate UFO encounters. I'm talking places that you can go to that have a plaque, a statue, a mural, a monument, a marker, a museum, something dedicated to a real UFO event that happened there. Surprisingly, there are a lot of places that commemorate UFO encounters. So much so, spoiler, there's going to be two episodes about it, this one and the next one. Now, you would think that a lot of towns would kind of shy away from the ridicule that comes from UFO encounters, but no, actually no. A whole bunch embrace, or at least they might not necessarily embrace it, but they'll put up a marker to tell people, hey, this is what happened here and when. I think that's kind of cool. How they can get city officials to go, yeah, sure, we'll put up a marker. I mean, I guess it kind of can drive tourism sometimes, not necessarily all of them, but it can drive tourism, but you'd still think that a lot of, you know, like stuffy old shirts in, uh, in city council would be like, no, I don't want to talk about UFOs. They're fake. Next, next topic. And you know, gavel, gavel, gavel. But 
apparently not the case. All right, so let's get started. Now, the first one is already having some troubles. You'll see what I mean. It's in Sheffield, Massachusetts. And for this one, we got to go back. Oh, wait, where's the... Yeah, there we go. Had to make sure I pushed the right button. For this one, we have to go back in time to September 1st, 1969, when a family in their station wagon came across a UFO. That's right. Tom Reed and his family, including his mom, his grandma, and brother, were riding in his station wagon from Ski Butternut in Great Barrington. They had just crossed the Sheffield Bridge, like old school covered bridge. I mean, if you think of like... I don't know what the bridges of Madison County look like, but if you think about the bridge that the Maitlands died in, uh, or died, died on in Beetlejuice, it think it's that kind of bridge. You know, that old country covered bridge. So they had just crossed the Sheffield Bridge when they all said, yep, at the same time, they all saw a bright light rise out of the Housatonic River. And I actually meant to check to see how you pronounce Housatonic, but I'm just going by the way it's spelled and it, it's spelled Housatonic River, so I'm sure that's wrong. Everything in Massachusetts is wrong. I'm sure it's not even pronounced Sheffield, but just go with me. You know the river if you live there, and if you don't, look it up. Uh, they felt that um, what Tom described, they all everybody in the car all felt what Tom later described as a change in pressure or possibly an electromagnetic field. Then Tom said, a dead silence fell. You couldn't hear anything. Not the car, not insects, not birds, not the UFO, nothing. They said the light grew brighter and then poof, they found themselves somewhere else. He said, now we do remember being in what looked like an airplane hangar. We didn't stay in the car. We were removed from the vehicle. That part is true. Where we were, I don't know, he said. They went from their station wagon to what he thought, again, was like an airplane-looking hangar. Um, here, they saw aliens that resembled large insects. So these are the praying mantis-looking kind of aliens. And Tom said it looked like an ant with some human features. It had a head that almost looked like a football shape. He was then separated from his mother and grandmother and taken into a strange room. Though, he said, he could hear them both calling out for him. Boom. Then just as suddenly, they were all back in the car. Now, they weren't the only ones that this happened to, though, at this time, because the Boston Globe did a piece about the UFO and talked to another person who had an eerily similar experience on the same night. That's right. At that time, not 20 years later, not 10 years later, when it happened, the Boston Globe did a story about it. They found another person. His name was Tom Warner, and this is what he said happened to him. He said, I was laying right where we're standing right here. He's standing in his yard. I was laying on the ground like this, and there was a beam on me. He said the beam came out of a UFO, 20 feet or more in height, probably around 30 to 40 feet around, and it had, as I'm looking now, I can see it, it had lights. The lights were colors I'd never seen in my life. This happened right by where Tom's encounter happened on the same evening. They went on to say, back in 1969... We had listeners calling the radio station that evening. This is uh, according to David Icy, who was the general manager of Great Barrington-based WSBS Radio. He said they didn't know it was a UFO at the time. They just called the station and said something bizarre is happening. 
We talked about it on air just last week, and one of our listeners, Jane Brown, who's now 84, this is more of a current um, report, but it did happen at the time. Uh, Jane Brown, who's now 84, she called into the radio station, and she told us she was one of the first people to report it. In total that night, the radio station got 40 calls from people reporting strange lights and even a saucer. In case you're, like, really, really skeptical about UFOs, Years later, Tom took a polygraph test about his encounter and passed with a 99.1% degree of certainty. This happened. All righty, let's move forward to 2015 when the Great Barrington Historical Society set on record that, yep, Reed's account was historically significant and true. So up went a $5,000 granite monument with a plaque commemorating, quote, our nation's first off-world UFO incident, saying, this governor's citation is in recognition of the off-world incident on September 1st, 1969, which engaged the Reed family, which has been established. Now, it was placed right near that cool covered bridge where Tom's encounter happened. It was lit up by a few lampposts, even got a couple like benches, all kinds of fun stuff you know, for people to come by and kind of enjoy, you know, enjoy the monument, whatever you want to say. So everybody that's listening right now that are local, they're probably thinking, cool, neat, I'll check that out. Thanks, Kurt. Well, hold on. Because we moved to 2019 when the monument was removed from the site by the town of Sheffield over who owned the land that the monument was put on. So it was officially, or not officially, it was originally defaced by spray paint, just random, no word, spray paint. They cleaned it up. Then someone looked at the land and went, hold on, it shouldn't be where it is. There's still like some kind of debate as to what to do with the monument. The town agrees that a number of still living townsfolk saw something that night, including the now police chief. And they want a record of that night, just not exactly where the monument was next to the bridge. So I'll, I'll put it out this way. If I see any updates on this monument, I'll let everyone know. I've also reached out to Tom Reed to hear his story directly from him because he still talks about it quite a lot. So fingers crossed. But in my opinion, we're off to a banging start here. All right, from there, let's go around this very round, spherical, not at all flat, stop it, people, Earth. That's right, we're going around the Earth to Poland. This one surprised me because this one happened in Poland on May 10th, 1978. In case you don't know it, not a lot of news got out from Poland in the early 70s or mid-70s. It was a communist news-run organization. So I thought this was very neat that not only did this story happen, that it got out, but how big this story actually was. So we're going to May 10th, 1978. Sorry, I didn't push the little button. That's when 71-year-old Jan Wolski, or Jan Wolski, but I think it's Jan, was out driving a horse-drawn cart early on uh, in the morning when he says he was jumped by two, quote, short, green-faced humanoid entities. They're about five feet tall. Now I'm going to pause right here and say that Jan is a weird dude, and I'm just going to read to you what he said throughout the story. So if you think, hey, that's rude or Kurt's being racist. Nope, it's Jan and I'm being very clear about it. All right, 
Here we go. So Jan says the two green-faced entities jumped into his cart and just sat next to him and started to speak in a language, a strange language, that he didn't understand. He said, they were talking in thin voices, unknown to me. I didn't understand any of it. All in all, I drove out from behind these two bushes, and there's this, well, some car hovering in the air. Now, that made me wonder that a car can hang in the air and float up and down by half a meter or so. Then Jan, not Kurt, Jan said, I originally mistaken them for foreigners because of, quote, their slanted eyes and prominent cheekbones. Yeah, Jan thought they were tiny green Asians. He later even drew them to look like tiny green Asian guys in like like a scuba suit without the tank and flippers. But he did say they had thinned hands or thinned fingers, I should say. They had fins on their fingers. Anyhow, so weird old Jan, these two aliens jump in his cart and he's just like, all right, and just keeps driving. And they're just chatting away. When they come to a clearing, he says he saw this huge hovering craft about 16 feet up as big as a medium-sized bus. Everywhere I found, that's how he used to describe it. Because apparently, you know, a measuring device in Poland is buses. How big was it? That was a small-sized bus. Oh, okay. It was a a medium-sized bus. Oh, that's pretty big. I couldn't find dimensions other than medium-sized bus. Sure, why not? We can all picture that in our heads. He said it was entirely white. It was equipped with elements that whirled and buzzed. There were four black objects that he thought looked like drills and they were humming, like one on either one on each end. It was almost like bus shaped or bread loaf shaped. And they had four, it had a uh, drill kind of thing coming off on each end of it. And he said, you know, the drills were humming. Then an elevator came down, like straight down below the UFO to the ground. And the aliens got in and then kind of motioned for Jan to, hey, why don't you get in as well? He's like, all right, he gets in too. So once they were in, he said that the UFO was bare, apart from eight to ten benches, each big enough for one person to sit on, and there was nothing on the walls at all. So then the aliens told, asked, I don't know how, because he didn't understand them a minute ago, told Jan, hey, get undressed. And he said he did. He did they they said, I did as they asked. I'm telling you, this guy is seriously laid back. Two aliens jump in his cart. Eh, whatever. Oh, look, a UFO. Eh, whatever. Hey, why don't you get naked for us? Yeah, you got it. Or however you say that in Polish. Uh, so he gets naked, and then, and then the uh, they start examining him using a pair of plates or saucer-looking kind of things. They finish examining him, and they offer some. They offer him something that looked like either like icicles or some strange honey-like food. Now, this is depending on where you get your info. But all of the stories come from Jan directly, so I don't know if it was some strange honey-like food that was in the shape of an icicle. I don't know. But Jan says, nah, I'm not hungry. And they went, all right, well, see ya. And he said, okay, and he just left. He said goodbye. Boom, done. Encounter over. You know, got a little naked, got a little physical, and got offered some food. Now nah, I'm good, and took off. Now, the local police said nothing ever happened, and they actually questioned Jan's story. But again, you got to remember the time, 1978 in Poland. Now, a few days later, a journalist, and I'm air-quoting like crazy right now, a self-proclaimed journalist named 
Zdislaw Blania, who considered himself a ufologist as well. Now, he came to town because he heard about Jan's abduction. Even though they were trying to keep it quiet, the police, everybody were trying to keep it quiet, word did get out. So he gets a psychologist to confirm that Jan was sane and not lying, and it happened. They said, yep, it's not sane, doesn't seem to be lying. Then he says he found another witness to the event, a six-year-old boy that said he too saw the UFO fly over his village that day. All right, Kurt here. Here's the problem here. 99% of people with knowledge of this event said the boy's story was completely made up, possibly paid by Zidislaw to say it. So huge grain of salt about the little boy, but Jan's story so far checks out. All right, so Zidislaw writes up the story, and to his surprise and everybody's surprise, really, it was picked up, not only locally, but kind of started spreading around the world, and Zidislaw was loving it. This guy was all about it. He always wanted to be part of a UFO, and boy, did he get his wish, and he started giving interviews out about the incident every chance he could. The June 6, 1978 issue of the Courier Pulski newspaper Quotes him about Jan. I don't believe that the witness could have given the details of the appearance or demeanors of the beings using only his imagination. Really? Eh, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, Zadislaw continues. He describes, for example, how their suits looked even though this information never appeared in Polish publications on UFOs. So I, I believe this is an account of an absolutely real, authentic experience. Basically, Zadislaw is saying... Hey, this guy, Jan, who didn't care about UFOs, knew nothing about UFOs, described aliens that were also seen previously in the area. All right, that's cool, I guess. Sure, why not? Uh, let's see. Uh, basically, Zdyslaw managed to make this story so big, kept talking about it so much, it was actually made into a documentary for communist TV called, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Look, I'm going to tell you, I'm not only going to get this word wrong, but most of the words in the next story wrong. So the communist TV Polish documentary was called Odwidzeni Suzuli Uprogu Tejminski. Tejminski. Sure, why not? Yeah, look, it's a documentary. Uh, it, that documentary led to the 1985 Ufological Congress that was held in the city of Lublin, which is near the city where all this happened, um, Emelson. Now, this was an event that included a lecture by Jan and even inspired a comic book called Prisbiz. Incomers. It's called Incomers, basically. Now, sadly... Both Jan and Zdyslaw have passed away, so I can't ever get in contact with them. We never may, we may never really know whatever happened there, but, you know, Jan wasn't crazy, wasn't lying. Psychologist said he was sane. So let's cut to 2005, when a monument was put up in town to commemorate this event. Now, it has the following written on it. A memorial consisting of a, it's a, well, they, all right. First of all, it's a memorial. It's a metal cube balanced on top of a rock. Here we go. And it says, on 10th of May, 1978, an Emelson, sure, an Emelson UFO object landed. The truth will astonish us in the future. It commemorates the most famous alleged UFO abduction case in Polish history. That 
of Jan Wolski, which is said to have taken place on May 10th, 1978. So if you get a chance to go to this town, which I'm sure I mispronounced, Emilson, Emilkin, whatever, if you go to Poland, you find this town, you want to go in May, because every May they have a crazy cool party there to commemorate this UFO encounter. And everybody loves a good UFO party. If you don't, I don't know why you listen to this podcast. All righty, let's keep international. Let's go to Angel Home, Sweden, where I am going to mispronounce so many things. All right, we're going to hit the Wayback button to the late evening of May 18th, 1946. This one goes back a ways. That's when 28-year-old railway worker and ice hockey player Gosta Carlson saw UFO land in Kronoskogen, which, as you all know, I'm sure, is just outside of Angelholm, Sweden. He said he perceived a bright ray of light on his way home through the forest. Look, I'm pretty sure I've said this in the past, but if I haven't, if you have to walk home through a forest at night after work, A, you're braver than me because I wouldn't do it, but B, keep an eye out for bright rays of light because I'm telling you, it might help you out. All right, so there's a bright ray of light. Right after that, right after the light, he encountered a UFO whose crew was working on repairing it. It was on the ground. Crew was working on it. Now, this was no, like, get nude and let's check you out with plates kind of thing. Oh, no, Ghosta says. Nope. He was given recipes from the aliens telepathically for natural medical remedies. Not only that, he said he tried them. It made him healthy. And boy, howdy, it must have really made him healthy because a short time later, Gosta Carlson quit his job at the Swedish Railway and founded the company of Cernel. He has since become a millionaire. This guy knows how to party with some aliens. They just gave him recipes and he's like, sure, let's do this. Boom, he's a millionaire. All right, let's get to the monument. Built in 1972, right in the clearing where he saw the light and the UFO, it's a three-ton concrete model of a flying saucer. Around the model are large concrete circles, which mark the dimensions of the landing tracks of that landed UFO. That's cool. Like, good on you, Ghosta. Ghosta? Sure, why not? All right, lastly, I think, for the International Monuments for this edition, there are more for the next edition, but for this edition, let's go to Livingston, Scotland, to what is now known as the Livingston Incident. You know, that makes sense. It was done in Livingston, Scotland. Or the Dechmont Woods Encounter. For this, let's travel back to November 9th, 1979, where Robert Taylor, a forestry worker for the Livingston Development Corporation, parked his pickup truck at the side of the road near the M8 motorway and walked along a forest path up the side of Deckmont Law, Deckmont Woods, whatever. And uh, he was walking with his dog, and that's when he saw a hovering 30-foot-high dome-shaped UFO in a clearing in the woods. Now, Robert described the UFO as, quote, a dark metallic material with a rough texture like sandpaper, featuring an outer rim set with small propellers. Yeah, small propellers around the outside of a dome-shaped UFO. Not the typical UFO description. All right, then things get weird. 
He starts to smell a foul odor like burning brakes. And he says two small spiked spheres rolled out of the UFO towards him. He said they were similar to like sea mines. Picture that. They seized him and were dragging him in the direction of the larger domed UFO when he lost consciousness. I would probably faint as well, so I'm not going to fault him for that. He woke up in a disheveled state 20 minutes later. The UFO and the spheres were gone, but a pattern of deep, regular marks were on the ground between him and the UFO. That's important. Now, he ran back to his truck, but depending where you get your info, either the truck wouldn't start or he crashed it almost into a ditch almost immediately. Either way, doesn't have his truck, so he walks back to his home in Livingston. When he gets home, he told his wife, Mary, that he'd been attacked by, quote, a spaceship thing. She thinks, "Uh uh-oh, this is bad. She calls the police, and once they interview him, they all went out to the clearing for themselves. Now, Detective Con Ian Wark, the scene of crime investigator, he arrives at the clearing and said there was a large gathering of police officers that were already there. He told the BBC he saw strange marks on the ground. There were about 32 holes, which were about three and a half inches in diameter, as well as marks similar to those made by the type of caterpillar tracks often fitted on bulldozers. So he thinks, all right, well, this guy works for construction. I'm going to go back to his work. So this detective goes to Robert's work, Livingston Development Corporation, in case you forgot, and he wanted to see if there was any machinery that could have been to blame for those marks and those holes and everything that Robert saw. And he said... After examining every piece of machinery they had up there, we did not find anything to match. Even more importantly, he noted the unusual marks on the ground were only found in the clearing and nowhere else without any indication of how they got there. He said, these marks, they just arrived. They didn't come from anywhere or go anywhere. They just arrived as though a helicopter or something had landed from the sky. So he also noted that an object of several tons had stood there, but there was nothing to show that it had been driven or towed away. There appeared to be no rational explanation for these marks in his report. Robert's pants, the ones that were all like scratched up, ripped up and everything, well, they were sent off to forensics who came back with this, quote, the trousers seemed to have been damaged by something hooking them and moving up. Okay. That's weird. That's really weird. Especially when you consider the most common skeptic explanation for it, which is weak at best. Some people think that Robert had an epileptic fit and he imagined everything. Here's the problem there. Officers said something huge made those marks and that sure as shit wasn't an epileptic fit. There was something big, something mechanical that landed right where he said it landed, marked up the ground like he said it would have, something happened to him. All right, it cuts to today where you can go to a trail and the monument for this incident. There is a rock with a plaque that was put there in 1991 that reads, This is the site referred to in Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which describes an encounter between a forestry worker out walking and what appeared to him as an unidentified flying object. In case you guys want to go to this, I I was like, well, that's kind of weak. It's just a trail. How are you going to find it? 
Here we go. The best way to find the Memorial Rock is to park a car to park at the car park beside Dean Community High School. There is a UFO trail information board near the car park. You cross the side of Deckmont Law and enter Deckmont Woods and walk around walk around the end of Deer Park Golf Course. Good forest tracks lead to the memorial at the site of the incident. So there you go. If you guys want to go visit that one, you can visit it. It's all so far all except for one are still out there for you guys to go and visit. And I highly recommend you guys to go over there if you do. Take a photo of you with the landmark and post it to the fan base page or send it to me and and email or Twitter or whatever. I want to see it is what I'm saying. I want to see some people going to these landmarks. And if you see a UFO, don't pass out. Don't let them have your pants. That's very important. Alrighty, from there, let's head on over to Seattle to the Maury Island Mural. For this one, we head back to June 21st, 1947, another old one. Now, I've actually talked about this incident before, but I'm not sure if it was on a patron-only episode. I think it was. I'm pretty sure it is. But it might have been a regular episode, but whatever. Here's a quick, quick recap. I highly recommend you find that episode and listen to the full story because it's way more detailed than what I'm about to go into. But here's your quick recap. Harold Dahl, his son Charles, and dog Sparky picked up two crewmen on the docks in Tacoma, and they headed out towards Maury Island on Harold's boat. The boat was called the North Queen. Now, Harold sees them first, but everybody in the boat saw it. Sees six huge flying disks in the sky. He said they were 100 feet across, hollow-shaped, kind of like a donut. But one of the UFOs seemed to be failing because it was lower than the others, started to be heading, you know, started, seemed to be heading down. Then, all of a sudden, there's an explosion and white-hot molten debris starts raining down over everything. Uh, sorry for this next part. Some of the debris hits the boat, killing Sparky instantly. I hate that part of the story. So, Charles' arm also gets hit and is burnt by the debris. So they're panicking now because they're right under it. All this shit's coming down. It's molten magma kind of debris. And the boat keeps getting hit. So they're like, screw it. And they full gun the boat and run it aground on the beach of Maury Island. They immediately run off the boat and hide under the cliffs. How long they were there? You have to listen to the full episode because I don't remember. But eventually the UFOs fly away. But the story is not over. Because the next day... Guess who shows up to talk to Harold? If you guessed a man in black, well, you're right, because it was. It was a man in black. A man in black, 1947, confronts Harold, and he tells him that he knew what Harold had seen that day before in the water, and he warned Harold not to tell anyone or bad things might happen. As far as I can tell, Harold's account is one of, if not the first, modern reference to the men in black. It's a great story. It deserves way more details. Like I say, find that episode. But for this one, you know, I want to get to the mural part of it. So if you head over to Maury Island, ever since 2013, there was a mural. Now it was removed from its original location, it was restored, and it's now 
or it made, I should say, was restored and made its debut at the Des Moines debut of the 2019 Burning Saucer event in Des Moines. Guess what? They have a party for this one too. Uh, but you can find the mural on the side of a shipping container at 605 South 223rd Street on Maury Island. Again, if you go there, take a photo, because this is a good story. I am really surprised. I think I talked about it on the, the actual episode itself, but I'm surprised that there's not more people out there with metal detectors, underwater metal detectors, or magnets, or whatever, trying to get more of this debris that came down into the water. It's still got to be down. There's got to be pieces of it still left. I know that the military came and took a lot of pieces away. If you listen to the story, there's, there's more to it. But there's got to be some slag or whatever you want to call it, some debris left there. So if I was a UFO hunter that I could afford it and I knew how to scuba dive and I had a metal detector and I had the money and the means to do it, you can bet your ass I would be just off of Maury Island trying to find the remaining, remaining debris, whatever you want to call it, because there has to be some of it left. There is no way that in 1947 the military got it all. The equipment we have today is way more advanced. There has to be pieces left. But that's just, you know, that's just me. And if you do it, if you go like, well, I got the means and I got the money and you do it, give me the exclusive interview with you. Or, you know, a cut of the profits or something. You know, just say like, I heard about it first on Paranormal Almanac. That's all I ask. I think it'd be cool though. Again, if I had a TV show, this would be one of the ones I would talk about on the TV show. And I would go there and try to find some of the debris just off Maury Island in Seattle. It's close by. I mean, it's cool. Local, relatively, compared to some of the other ones. Alrighty, well, let's call it an episode for this one. But again, like I said earlier, don't be surprised if the next episode is a part two to this one because, well, it's exactly what's going to happen. There is going to be a part two to this episode. You might not have to wait as long as you think you're going to have to wait for the part two. But since this one is approaching an hour, I figured let's kill it. Make this one an episode. We'll release a part two very soon. We can talk about a lot more monuments because, like I said, there are a bunch more monuments to talk about. So next week or coming up very soon, Paramaniacs, same para time, same para podcast, uh, it's going to happen. And I'm excited for it because, again, anything that's tangible that I can go to. Oh, geez, that was a big pop. Sorry. Anything that's tangible that I can go to that commemorates a paranormal event, I am in, man. I, you know, roadside attraction, I don't care what it is. If it's about a paranormal event, I am all about it. And I include UFOs and paranormal events. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Samick, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. He drops deep snack.